Romans chapter four, verses one through three. What then shall we say that Abraham, our father, has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, that means if he was made right before God by what he did. So if that's true, if it's true that he's justified by his works, he has something to boast about. I did this. Look, I can boast. Not before God. For what does the scripture say? Here's Paul appealing to Scripture right away. Something many churches have lost sight of. We're going to see this is not uncommon in humans. We have a way of losing sight of our foundations. It's happened in our country in many aspects. It happened in Rome. It happened to the Jews. And we're going to see that in a minute. And it happened to the people right here. They're seeing this. They've lost sight. It's happened in America In many churches, they've lost sight that Scripture is where we find our foundational truths. So even Paul says this. What does Scripture say? It says that Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. We'll come back to that in a second. Oh no, when I was reading this, it made me think of a story many years ago when our family moved to this county. We joined a small country church, many fine people in that church. A couple of big families kind of ran the church. And I can remember one of the families, sort of the patriarch of the family, an older gentleman, just a, a really nice man, a man who raised his family well and did a lot of good things. So I'm having a conversation with him after church, and we're in the sanctuary. It's kind of quiet, you know, people milling around, moving out. And we were talking about salvation, talking about the hope of heaven. And he said, talking about his own salvation, I sure hope so. In other words, I hope I get to heaven. And I was not a baby Christian, but I was still a pretty young Christian at that time. And so there was something in me that said, that's not the right answer. I also, though, thought, what an honest answer. Wow, I can talk to this person because he's being honest. That is where I think we often run right into a problem, all of us. Because if we're all honest, at some point in our lives, at points in our lives, at points in our day, we call our salvation into question. And it's because of a few different reasons, I believe, and I'm going to get to those in just a minute, but Scripture is telling us that this is not true. Back to verse 3, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. He believed God. He didn't just believe in God, he believed God. That is not something to be taken lightly. This is a radical shift into the New Testament, into the cup of salvation that we have through Jesus. This goes against the whole world. Just doesn't go against the Jewish-Gentile split. They had the split over everything. They were separate races. Uh, You think we have divisions today. This was even bigger, the circumcised and the uncircumcised. This was the deal in the early church. But it goes beyond that. This speaks to our world. Our world is like this. Our world is a merit-based system, generally speaking, even if you live in a corrupt society, it's still, have you worked hard enough to get the free stuff? So we live in a manipulative world. Our human relationships are manipulative. Even the best marriages, there's soft and subtle manipulation going on all the time. We do it and we know it if we're honest with ourselves. And that's why I think sometimes coming to this 
Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness is difficult for us because we're getting something absolutely free and undeserved. How can somebody be credited as being righteous when they've done nothing? It doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem right. Actually, we scream against this a lot of times. Somebody gets pardoned. Somebody gets pardoned out of jail by a governor who's leaving or a president who's leaving office. And we're like, what are they doing? Like that person, they deserved it. Maybe they did deserve it. But that's in our hearts. And not only are we condemning other people, we condemn ourselves. We self-talk ourselves into condemnation. Our sin clings to us like a shadow and we can't escape it. We can hide from it. We can distract ourselves. And when we come into the light, the shadow is there. The sin is there. And there's no way to get rid of it on earth. And it bothers us. It's like that little pebble in your shoe. It's just always there. And so what Paul is saying is like, this is false. And it's hard. It's hard to think this way. But we're commanded to. And we have a choice as to what we put our belief in. Because belief isn't a feeling. It's a truth that you accept, and then you live by that. Even when you don't feel like it, even on your worst of days, and that is what is so awesome about our God, because even on our worst of days, he still loves us and he still saves us. Just ask Peter, just ask Paul, who was vicious. Imagine his shadow, killing Christians. His shadow was like probably a mile long. The sun was sitting right on the horizon. There goes his shadow, just all that sin, and yet he is set free. So that term accounted, you'll see it later in the chapter, imputed, or sometimes you see credited. All of that means putting in something into somebody's account that they never earned it. Doom, there it is. Maybe you have, not only by like a mistake, but maybe somebody has given you a gift and they just, boom, put it in your account. I can remember my mother did that for me. I think she knew that maybe we were having some kind of struggle and the you know, car like broke down 1,400 times in a row or something. And and I don't know how she got a hold of my bank account. That's how moms can be. And all of a sudden, there was like 500 bucks in the bank. It felt so great. Oh my gosh, I didn't, just there it is. There's the bank account. There's another zero. Uh, so simple. It's just like a couple of electrons in the shape of this round. And it means so much. So that's what Paul is sort of trying to get you to unravel out of your brain. You're wired this way. So am I. So verse 4 Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. And this is a pretty obvious argument. I mean, he doesn't really need to elaborate here. We know that if you work and you earn something, you work for a couple of weeks or whatever, and you know, you get a paycheck, you're not like running into your boss's office like, thank you, you're so awesome. I mean, maybe it's your first paycheck. Hopefully you're grateful, you have a job and stuff, but you've earned it. That's my job. I earned it but that's not how God looks at it. Because if we look at it this way, we begin to bargain with God. We begin to say, well, I've earned this. And even in the back of your head, yeah, a lot of this happens subconsciously if you really check yourself. Or maybe you have a spouse that checks you and says, you know what? Are you really thinking about this correctly? You could check all the Christian boxes. You have done nothing to earn your salvation. You've done zero. But until a person fully believes this, they're not free because they're not confident. They're not bold. 
You watch a sports athlete play with absolute confidence and they are reckless. They're like amazing. They make a mistake. They don't care. I used to coach outside linebackers in high school football. And, you know, they're like, they're kind of in this weird area. Do I cover the receiver or do I rush the quarterback? And I'm like, I don't care. Do one. If you're not sure, do one. Don't sit there and go, what do I do? You freeze and you're just worthless. So do one. Go for God. That's what this unleashes in us. It unleashes a freedom. A freedom to be passionate about life because that's what we really all want. We want that passion in our lives. So look at verse four just a little bit. That word grace, actually a Greek word, charis, charity. And, and here's another radical shift in thinking. This is why the New Testament is so awesome. You wouldn't make it up because nobody would want to work this way. The Greeks had that word charity, but it always meant to a friend. You know, giving something freely to a friend. We all get that. Somebody you really love, a friend, a family member, you freely give them something and you're glad to do it. Hopefully that's occurred in your life. How about your enemy? It even rocks my world sometimes. Like, I don't want to do it. I'm like driving along. You know, this person who just like tailgating me. I want a break check right now. Just a tap to God, just a little tap. I'm trying to be nice. I'm trying to show them the error of their way. No, you're not. You're being spiteful. This is, again, another radical shift. So Paul is like breaking apart the circumcision. He's breaking apart this idea of charity that it extends to everybody. You can imagine how hard this is to hear. But, verse 5, to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. But to the person who does not work, in other words, not laziness, but believes on God who justifies, he makes right the ungodly. I picture this couple verses from Matthew chapter 8. When he had come down from the mountain, Jesus, great multitudes followed him, and behold, a leper came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. This leper, the lepers in the Old Testament were symbolic of sin, unrepentant, distance from God, they've done something wrong, they were lepers, stay away from them. So Jesus is here and this leper comes to him, but he comes to him, if you think about it, if you really read it carefully, comes to him with such an incredible attitude. He comes to him if you are willing. Now, sometimes we pray that because some of us know we're supposed to pray. We're like, oh Lord, if you're willing, heal my foot. We say that, yeah, maybe we somewhat believe it. But here's a leper who's like bursting with sores and, and he's scabs and people think he's like contagious and stay away from him. He's like the devil. I cannot picture this guy saying, Lord, if you are willing and not meaning it. I don't know if I would utter those words. I would probably be like, heal me, you know, but he said, if you are willing, in other words, our prayers are aligned with his will. That is what the Lord is just asked to enter into his trust to believe him, not just believe in him, but to believe him. There's a subtle, but a very stark difference in that. And that is, I believe, what Paul is saying here. That is sort of the ticket in a way. That's sort of the ticket to our salvation, is that 
Just believe. Put your trust in. And I think that's even better. You see that translated that way sometimes. We always think it's a feeling. No. Put your trust in. I get on an aircraft. I'm putting my trust in it. I'm not really believing very easily that two inches of aluminum from seven miles of death is really nice to think about. And it just doesn't seem natural to me. But I trust it because I have some knowledge. I override my feelings. And I'm like, okay, all right, let's block it out. You know, that is what the Lord is saying. He is saying to just trust him. Read it, believe it, act on it, pray about this, and relax. You're safe. Quit fretting. Quit being paralyzed. And Paul was speaking to some paralyzed people here. So go over to verse 6. And he jumps now from Abraham, who is like the father of the Jewish race. He is the guy who the Jews look up to as number one. So he's quoting Scripture. Paul is. He says, well, what does Scripture say? And he goes to Genesis. I'm kind of backtracking just a bit here, but he says, Abraham was accounted righteous. This is basically from Genesis chapter 15. Then God brought Abraham outside and said, look toward heaven, count the stars if you were able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. And he, Abram, who became Abraham, believed in the Lord and he accounted it to him as righteousness. That's it. He believed in him. He didn't work for it. The Jews said at the time, many of them, not all of them, that you had to work for it. You had to follow the law. You had to be circumcised. You had to do this. You had to do that. Sacrifices and all these rituals. And they were just basically plugged into how the world works. So I started doing a little research and I'm like, well, how did they come to believe this? Well, how do we come to believe anything? It ends up not being true. It happens a lot. It's happened in your life. You've thought one way and it actually turns out to be another. You were raised one way and you're like, well, maybe there's a better way. And you find out that to be true. Maybe if you're here, maybe you've seen this in your own life, in your own walk, where you have operated sort of in a legalistic way. Now you're operating out of grace. But truly, you've seen this happen before. So how did the Jews get here? I did a little research and I discovered that over time, the Jews had begun to look at this little thing which defies operating under the law in Genesis. And they began to like make up this little belief system around it. And I read some commentary. They said that Abraham had special anticipatory knowledge. If you really can't understand something, just make up this long term. There are some churches that have done this. They can't explain something. You can't just let it be. There's some things you can't explain. So we'll define it like this. He had some anticipatory knowledge. For 14 years before Abraham became circumcised, so there's 14 years from that moment when he is counted righteous in front of God to when he becomes circumcised. So for 14 years, he had some special dispensation from God that is not in Scripture. And he just happened to follow. Sorry, it's not in Scripture. I did read a commentary that was uncovered at some point in history from a few thousand years ago. A small group of rabbis had wrote this. Abraham, our father, inherited this world and the world to come solely by the merit of faith whereby he believed in the Lord, for it is said, and then they went on to quote that in Genesis, and he believed in the Lord and accounted him as righteousness. So not all Jews were there. We know that disciples were Jewish. We know that a lot of his early followers were Jewish. 
So I can imagine somebody who may have written something like this was probably sitting there when Jesus was teaching. And they began to follow him because it was true. It's true. You can't count those stars or the grains of sand at the beach. And here we sit, all of us. It doesn't matter, Paul says. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter how you got here. What matters is the here and the now. Salvation is today. Today is the day of salvation. And that is something that is a present tense type of thing. It's not the future until you get better. It's not the past, which Christ on the cross never remembers. It's now. What do you believe now? And when you put your faith in Jesus now, because that's all that matters, the world changes. Because there's nothing you can do about the future and there's nothing you can do about your past. And this is the beauty of the gospel because it's like a sniper. It's a perfect shot. And there's nothing you need to do to get in God's favor. So he's now appealing to David and he's like, hey, this guy too. And so the Jews are like, wow, he's quoting Abraham. And now David, it's like a physicist quoting Einstein and quoting Newton. And oh, you can't argue with that. So he's quoting David here and he's actually backtracking. I'll read right here, seven and eight. It's worded a little different in the Psalms, but the same thing. It's just Paul stating basically in his words what Psalm 32 is saying, just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God impute righteousness apart from works. He's telling the Jews, it doesn't matter. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. This is David speaking. David, just powerful David. David, you know, the man God just loves so much. He's so powerful for the Lord. We read all about him. His early Psalms are just so strong. David is strong in the Lord. Until, some of you famously know, David like falls on his face. He gets caught in sin. And then he begins to describe it. It was just in the Psalms, the tone, the attitude changes. And I saw this immediately reading a little further. Psalm 32, I want to read one through five, not just the couple there that Paul quoted. So David says, this is really, really great. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and whose spirit there is no deceit, not hiding from the sin. Then he goes on. When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. I just pictured David thinking back at that season of hiding his sin and the Spirit of God just weighing on him. His hand was heavy and his vitality was gone. Jesus came, if you look in the New Testament, he came here not to condemn, but to save. And he came here to bring you joy and peace in your life. And I think everybody in here can look back at some point, maybe even now, 
can look and say, and think of that time that that sin was there. It just sapped you. It drew life out of you. And that's what David is just extolling here. It's like, it's just the drought of summer. And then he goes on, I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. So he comes to repentance and we know he paid a price for it. There is a consequence to it, but there's also a freedom in it. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the inequity of my sin. That's what David did. That's what Paul is saying. He's telling the Roman church, that's all he did. And he was set free. So that is, Paul could not be clearer as to what the antidote is to the sin in our life and to freedom in Christ. So it's not just like a negative, but it's hopeful. Say, now I'm free and I can be used in any way. I'll have joy in that too. So it's both going on at the same time. When I was looking at some context, the the way they use the grammar, and I'm not a Greek expert or anything like that, but they were talking about how it's both a negative and a positive in the wording, which I thought was fantastic. Verse 9 and 9 through 12, he's revisiting the circumcision again because this is the deal of the day. Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only or the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted while he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. That's entered into evidence. We all know that. Everybody can, the lawyers both agree. And he received the sign of circumcision. And here we get to the last sort of thing we get hung up with. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had while still uncircumcised. So this seal was not what saved him. It's not. That he might be the father of all who believe. All. Though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them as also. That's boom, granted to them. And the father of the circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of the faith, which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. You know, we think about a seal, we think about a wedding ring. If you're married and you're not wearing it for some reason, you have a job, it could get hung up on, so you don't wear it, you're still married. It's a seal. Or baptism. We know baptism doesn't save you. Because if it did, then we would just like go jump in the pool. That's easy. Oh, that's really simple. That's like, God is a God of reason. That's reasonable. It's an outward symbol of something that's gone on inside. And I'll share this with you. I was baptized like four years ago. It's not that long ago. Well, I was born into a Catholic family, baptized as an infant. And so later, we were nominal Catholics, you know, because we went so seldom that I knew just enough to scare the life out of me. I mean, like the Holy Ghost and And I remember the big cross at the front with Jesus hanging up there and blood and thorns. And I didn't know what any of it meant. There were no Bibles in the pews. And we would just go. And I'm like, this is scary. And so later, as I came to know the Lord in my earlier adulthood, this question of baptisms, as I started learning more and more, and then about seven years ago, started coming to Calvary and, you know, all the professing baptisms. And so I I entered into this self-argument. Like, oh, well, maybe I need to, maybe I need to be baptized. 
But then I'm like, well, if I feel like I, I need to be baptized, is that me speaking? And am I doing it because I think that will save me? Well, then that's wrong because that doesn't save me. So maybe I should be baptized. But then I'm not honoring the Lord. But then if I'm not baptized, then maybe people will think I'm like a baby Christian and I don't want to be thought of that way. So I'm like, what am I going to do? And this went on for like weeks. And then finally, I just prayed about it. I'm like, Lord, this has nothing to do with salvation. And so I then said, okay, I'm just going to give it to the Lord. And whenever the Lord says, you go get baptized, and that's really weird, because who's waiting on that? I mean, what are you waiting for? I mean, what am I going to see? What am I going to hear? And so, like, years go by, three or four years go by, and I'm painting. I used to teach public school, and so in the summers, I would do all kinds of stuff all the time. I was painting this house on the outside. So I'm up there days, days on end, painting this house, and not even thinking about it. And in a moment, God said, go get baptized. Every cell in my body screamed it out of the blue. And I was happy about it. And I was like, no self-talk, no argument with myself. Wow, peace and joy. I had it. I mean, I felt like jumping in the paint can. I mean, I I came down the ladder and I called Steve and he answered really quick. They'd normally call him back in those days. And he's like, hey, what's up? And I'm like, hey, I want to go get baptized. And it was like this pause. So um, Steve, cool, let's do it. You know, you know, Steve, he's like, yeah, let's go. Let's, let's go like to the Rio Grande to do it or something. I don't know. He's, yeah, a few weeks later, I was baptized. It was just, it was wonderful. It was peaceful. It was, uh, it just felt perfect in his time. Maybe so I could share this right now. His time, his providence, he owns it. He's bought me and redeemed me out of slavery. Who am I to question? And who am I to tell him? And when I wait on him and he shares with me his promises, and there are dark days just like in every one of your lives, but he shares with you those promises, there is no deeper satisfaction this side of it. And I think many of you know where I'm coming from. So I want you to leave here just thinking that Paul is saying this, and Jesus is just screaming through the scriptures, I love you, and there's nothing you can do to earn my favor, but respond to his love. And how do you do that? You do that by obeying his commandments, loving others, as he loves you and loving him with your whole heart. That is believing Jesus when you do that, believing the Lord. Let's pray. Father, you are the author of all of creation. You know everything about us already. And we play games. We play games in our own head. Satan speaks to us and says, are you really saved? The world says, hey, you have to work for this. You have to earn this. Many religions preach this openly or subtly. Sometimes we come to church and we don't feel like we're good enough because so-and-so is doing this and -and so-and-so is doing that. I'm just not worthy of any of that. But who you are came off a cross. From that cross, you took all humility. You took the weight of the entire sin of the world, so heavy and so dark. You took it. You took it for me. You took it for each person in here. 
you ask of us but one thing, and that's to believe you, to trust that the promises that you have, that you promise to us, something the world can never buy, something you can never buy, repentance of your sin. You can't buy it. If you could, we'd spend anything, but we can't. And so we just sit at your feet. Lord, we trust you despite what the world says. We put our faith in you. We ask, Lord, for your spirit to convict us, to strengthen us, to help us be bold, and to fortify our faith, something that we can't do in our own feeble bodies. Thank you, Lord. We love you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.